What's up, Tiaholics? Welcome back to the Tea on Crime. It's your host, Britt. And I'm the co-host, Jessica, wife and true crime skeptic. Just as a reminder before we get started, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply our own and are only presented to educate. We've linked the case sources in the episode notes below. Hold on real quick, you guys. We're jumping into an ad. What a long-awaited hello. 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 Long-awaited for... For all the fans. Oh. And for me. And for you. Yeah. Yeah. Here we are. You're back from vacation. Yay. Yay. <laughs> we, or I guess me, are so excited to be giving you this episode today. This week, I'm telling you the case of Robert Eric Wan, and this is episode 20. Can you believe it? <laughs> No, I can't actually. No, I actually really can't believe it's 20. Before we get started today, I want to provide a listener warning. This episode will contain graphic content, including talk of rape and sexual acts. Please take care while listening. We're just jumping right in. We're always jumping right in. My goodness. (laughs) I just think you've been looking for these kind of stories for the last like six episodes. Forever. At least I'm giving the warnings though. You know, that is true. That is a very nice courtesy because the first time you didn't, I was shocked by some very disturbing material. Well, today you're prepared. Robert Eric Wan was born on June 1st, 1974 to parents William and Amy. He was the eldest of two sons. He was a fourth generation Chinese American born in Manhattan and raised in Brooklyn, New York. His great-grandparents immigrated from China to the United States in the 1930s, and the family has lived in New York ever since. Kind and brilliant, Robert was a bright kid who made friends easily. He was the kind of guy who would go around putting change into random parking meters so the stranger wouldn't get a parking ticket. He did good deeds just for the sake of doing them. That sounds like you. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) Robert was a friend to everyone and had a smile that could light up any room. To describe Robert as promising would be an understatement. He was accepted as a top applicant to the College of William and Mary in Virginia. He worked as an aide to the president of the university during his time at school, and he formed a strong clique of equally promising friends, and he seemed to fit seamlessly. It was while he was at the university that he met Joseph Price, an ambitious future lawyer. Nice. Joseph Price had given Juan and his parents their very first tour of the campus. The two young men both shared a passion for politics and student government. That also sounds like you. I do love politics. Is this really about you? And was in student government. (laughs) Yes. Price, who is three years older, became Robert's mentor and a collaborator on a campus project. They were fast friends, and together the two revamped a campus secret society called the 13 Club that did secret acts of kindness. I love these kind of secret clubs. That's a pretty cool secret club, actually. I wonder how many of them are around at universities like that. Oh, there's a bunch. Really? Yeah, there's a movie also called uh, Dead Poets Society. It's with Robin Williams. Such a great movie. Classic. Yes. While I did attempt to find further information behind the 13 Club, it's true what they say, it really is a secret. I was able to find that it was founded at the university in 1890, but little information is made public regarding the club. It's been said that the club maintains such a high secrecy that even members, wives, and children are unaware of their membership. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's super low-key. That's pretty cool. The group does have a well-known campaign called Be Here Now. 
the group is also presumed to have 13 members and still exists to this day. So if anyone's listening and you're in the club, let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us your secrets. Yeah. After graduating with his bachelor's degree in 1996, Robert went on to obtain a law degree from the University of Pennsylvania in 1999. He landed a job with a prestigious law firm, Covington and Burling, and became a rising star within the Asian American legal community. I love that. It was at a legal conference in January of 2002 where Robert would meet his future wife, Catherine Yu. Catherine, or Kathy, as she is known by friends and family, is the daughter of Korean immigrants and grew up in Chicago. Kathy had her own list of academic achievements as well as a promising career as a lawyer. At the conference, Kathy saw Robert across the room and said that he was a really good-looking guy. She was shy but found a reason to introduce herself the second day of the conference, and by the end of the session, Robert sought her out. We just kept talking, and Kathy said, When you like someone, talk comes easily. We talked for hours, and we talked right through dinner until midnight. Cute. Upon meeting Kathy, Robert told all of his friends that he felt like this was going to be the woman that he would spend the rest of his life with. He knew right away that he was going to marry her. A few weeks later, Kathy had to travel to D.C. It was Valentine's Day and the two had planned to have dinner at Mimi's on P Street. Kathy went to give him something special, but not too intimate. That's so cute. Mm -hmm. She decided on a photo album of Chicago pictures with notes about the places that were special to her. Robert had bought a box of Godiva chocolates and a handwritten note was included. Did you just say Godiva? Yeah, is that how you say it? It's Godiva. Godiva? Well, that's fancy chocolate I've clearly never had. You need to buy me a box. You've never heard of Godiva chocolates. No, you've clearly never bought me a box. You don't like (laughs) chocolate. Well, maybe the fancy kind. In the note, it said, where to from here? He wrote at the end of the letter, I'm not certain, but I'm excited to find out if you are there. And so within a year of meeting, Robert proposed, Kathy said yes, and they moved to Washington, D.C. They were married in 2003. By 2006, they had it all. Careers they loved, friends who cared, and bright futures ahead. Unfortunately, the wands wouldn't get the happy ending they were hoping for. Oh, no. Now we're getting into it. Does this have to do with Kathy? Is that why you said the warning? (laughs) No. Oh. By early summer of 2006, Robert wanted something more out of life. He was excelling as a young lawyer at Covington and Burling Law Firm in D.C., but he had a desire to be of service to his community. He told Kathy that he wanted to apply for a position as the General Counsel for Radio Free Asia, a nonprofit American news organization aimed Mm -hmm. at supplying uncensored media content to underserved and oppressed communities in Asia. Yes, so places like North Korea still to this day are very closed down. They're very controlled under their government. So a lot of the citizens can't have things that Americans take for granted. So for instance, like McDonald's, Burger King over there, the common people can't have that. It's the children of like the politicians that have the higher, more well-known society titles that can get that. They pay a really pretty penny for it, but yeah, they censor everything that's horrible so this is basically providing it to everyone I it's assume. providing yes uncensored news that's really great that is really great taking this job would mean a severe decrease in robert's salary but kathy was all in robert went through the interview process and landed the job by early august he was settling into his new role on august 2nd robert made arrangements to stay overnight in washington dc 
There was a nighttime legal seminar that he was supposed to attend, and afterward, he wanted to go into the Radio Free Asia offices and introduce himself to the second shift staff. Kathy and Robert both agreed that it would be better for him to stay overnight in D.C. instead of trying to make a long trip home via public transportation back to their condo in Oakton, Virginia. It just so happens that a dear friend of Robert's from college, a person that Kathy already knew well, Joseph Price, lived nearby. And he's the one that did the tour with him on the first day, right? Yes, and then ended up being in that secret 13 club with him. Okay. Now, I did look up the distance that Robert would have had to drive from Washington, D.C. back to their home in Oakton, Virginia, and it would have taken him 32 minutes. It was roughly 18.4 miles away. Mm -hmm. I don't know your opinion on that because obviously we're just starting the story, but I will say that I find it a little strange that Robert was against driving that night. or taking public transportation but again i don't know how long that would take yeah the traffic out there is a night really okay it's like california on steroids (laughs) well that makes a little more sense then because i didn't i was confused why rush hour is terrible up that way right so it clearly would have taken him a lot longer then yes Well, that kind of takes out the next part of my story, but I thought that maybe perhaps he wanted to see Joseph and that was his way to do so was by staying overnight. I don't know how long it had been since the pair had seen each other and this was an opportunity that maybe he decided to take. Well, I'm sure maybe he was just like, you know what, it's kind of a long drive. I don't feel like fighting traffic. My buddy Joseph lives there. Yeah, I haven't seen him in a minute. Why not? Right. Well, especially with that traffic. My gosh. Joseph Price was a very active member of the LGBTQ plus community. He graduated from UVA with his law degree, and he made partner at a high-powered national law firm. He also became the president of the Gay and Lesbian Alumni Association. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Very involved. Yes. Price was in a long-term committed relationship with Victor Zabrowski, who was a senior marketing manager for Mill Processors Education Program, and they were the people behind the famous Got Milk slogan campaign in the early 2000s. Okay, that's the one where they have celebrities, and then they have, like, the painted-on milk mustache. Yeah, the milk mustache. Yeah, yeah. You think it's painted-on? I always wondered if it was real. Why? How would that be real? Hey, you never know. Oh, my God. (laughs) In 2004, they brought a second man into their relationship, Dylan Ward. The three of them then moved into a $1.2 million townhome off of DuPont Circle. Oh. Yeah, fancy. Mm -hmm. And this townhome, when I looked into it, DuPont was reported to be a very popular residential neighborhood. It's a very expensive residential Yes, very expensive. And it was apparently very well known for the fine dining and the nightlife and was voted one of the safest places to live. Okay. So the men have a very active nightlife in general. Mm -hmm. um, And the city was also known for the art galleries in their town, which was pretty cool. That is very cool. On August 2nd, around 9.30 p.m., after the educational legal seminar that Robert was attending, he called Kathy while in the cab heading back to his office to meet the staff at Radio Free Asia. He told her he would grab a cab after he was finished introducing himself to the staff and would have the cab take him to Joseph and Victor's house where he wanted to go to bed. Oh, so, well, there would have been no traffic 
I'm assuming at, there wouldn't have been rush hour. I, w- I thought you were saying that he was going to go there. No, the day. no. So the seminar was at night. And then when the seminar ended, which it looks like was around 930, he took a cab. He wanted to go to Radio Free Asia. And then after he introduced himself, instead of making the 18 mile drive home, he decided he was going to stay there, which is what I was saying earlier that I found a little interesting, maybe not odd. You know, here's the thing, though. You, your bedtime, right? And you're <laughs> 31 years old. Your literal bedtime is 7.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on the dot. I'm not ashamed. I'm just saying maybe, <laughs> maybe he was tired. Yeah, maybe he was one of those people that is young but old at the same time. Maybe he is. We won't jump to conclusions yet. The next part of this story is really important, and I want you to keep the timeline in mind. Okay. What I want you to remember is that the events that are about to take place, we're working with a two hour and 19 minute timeline from the time that Robert called his wife, Kathy, on his way to meet the staff at Radio Free Asia studio and the time it took him to get a cab and to make it to Joseph and Victor's house, exactly two hours and 19 minutes. So you're stating that after his seminar and meeting, going over to the Free Asia radio, introducing himself to the second staff, and then arriving to Joseph's house, it took him two hours and 19 minutes. No, I just want you to keep in mind that this entire event of the story I'm about to tell you in general, there's a two hour and 19 minute timeline. But it'll it all make sense from later. Him leaving. Yes, it starts from the moment he was on the phone with Kathy in at 9 30 in the, the cab on the way to Radio Free Asia. Oh, okay. So, okay, got it. Got yes. It. So just right. keep the timeline in mind. Two hours, 19 minutes. Got it. <laughs> 11.49 p.m. on August 2nd, 2006, a 911 dispatcher in Washington, D.C. receives a phone call from Victor Sobrowski, who was crying and frantic, stating that he needed an ambulance at his residence. He stated an intruder had been inside his house and stabbed a friend of theirs who had been staying the night. When the dispatcher asked Victor if someone was bleeding, he replied yes from his stomach. Oh. He was asked who was with the victim, and Victor stated his partner Joe Price was with him on the second floor, and he told him to go upstairs and call 911. Note that Victor does not answer the question when he was asked about who the victim was. Yeah, he just said a friend, right? A friend. Okay. The operator tells Victor to tell his partner to grab a towel and apply pressure to the wound. She can be heard in the phone call repeating herself several times. Get a towel, apply pressure. Her instructions were very specific and pretty clear, obviously. When the towel fills up with blood, apply another one on top of it, but do not remove the initial towel. Okay, so don't remove the first towel, reapply a second. Well, yeah, that makes sense because then you would take the pressure off. Okay, right. got it. The 911 operator tells Victor to go open the door for the paramedics, but while Victor makes his way downstairs, he volunteered the information that the killer must have ran out of the house with one of their knives from the kitchen, but that he did not know who did this. That's random. Right. He repeated that sentence more than once. The knife had to come from their kitchen, but again, he did not know who could have done this. The paramedics arrive at 11.54 p.m., which is five minutes after Victor places the call. Hold on a minute. So Victor, the partner of Joe, Joe's with, I'm assuming you're about to tell me Robert, right? Because he's spending the night. Right. So Joe's with Robert on the second floor. Victor is making the phone call from the third floor? Yes. 
I guess my question is, when did you find time to run downstairs and do a check? Who would do a check of like an inventory of the house? I understand doing an inventory right in the kitchen, right next to the phone. If the phone's there in the kitchen, right? Yes, but you're on the third. When did you? Okay. Well, and keep in mind that the operator did not ask him anything. She was simply providing instructions of what to do in regards to the bleeding. He's offering up all of this information more than one time, repeatedly. The knife is from the kitchen. I don't know who did this. It's very random. Right. Especially when you're not asked. All right. So red flag number one. Got it. Okay. (laughs) Check mark. As the paramedics go up the stairs, they encountered another resident of the house, Dylan Ward, coming out of a hallway bathroom on the second floor. He appeared to have been freshly showered and was wearing a robe. Red flag number two. Yes. Okay. When he was asked what was going on, he did not acknowledge anyone. He walked right past the paramedics into a bedroom and closed the door. Friendly. Yes. And suspicious. All at the same time. It was down the hall to the guest room where the paramedics would find the body of 32-year-old Robert Wan laying on a fully made pull-out sofa bed. There was no one in there attempting to hold a towel over his stab wounds as Victor had been instructed to do so. Oh, maybe he was, I'm assuming he was probably already dead then at that point. Yes. Okay. Joseph Price was sitting on the bed in his underwear with his back to the door. When he was asked what was going on, Joseph, without turning around, simply replied that he heard a scream. Okay. It's later reported that the paramedics said that Price's behavior was so eerie, they looked at his hands to see if he had a weapon, and they positioned themselves in such a way that they could both attend to Robert while keeping an eye on Joseph. Oh, okay. So they did not trust his intentions. They didn't, and he never turned around. He just sat there with his back to them the whole time. So I could see why they would feel skeptical and not really know how to take him because i'm but again we don't know how everyone responds i was about to say traumatic yes yeah everybody who's in shock is going to respond completely different right robert was found laying with his head on a pillow his hands were down at his side the mouth guard he would use at night while he was sleeping was still in place he was wearing a gray william and mary t-shirt and he had been stabbed three times in the front of his torso and with his head laying on was he laying face down or face up Face up. Okay. Yes. One of the paramedics said that the heart wound was gaping so big, he could place his finger inside of it. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a pretty big hole. I was about to say, that must be a pretty big knife. Right. There was a knife with a light smearing of blood on the blade sitting next to the bed on the bedside table. Okay. So keep that in mind, okay? As the paramedics attempted to help Robert, they were able to feel that he had no pulse and he had been dead for some time. They transported him to the hospital and he was officially pronounced dead at 12.25 a.m. I feel like I should be writing all of this down. (laughs) Taking notes Is this going to be a conspiracy theory one? You know, I feel like there's 30,000 different ways you can go with this case. So possibly because there's a lot of different rabbit holes, I think. I like these kind of cases. (laughs) They're your favorite. They are. Kathy received a phone call that night from Joseph Price. He told her that Robert had been stabbed and was being taken to George Washington University Hospital. Kathy right away called Robert's parents, who had moved to Northern Virginia from Brooklyn that March to be near their son and daughter-in-law. Did he not tell them that he was, I mean, did he not tell her that he was already dead? No, but I mean, not, it's not that messed up if you think about it, because I feel like most people, when they're relaying that information, they want you to drive safely. 
right? I'm not going to tell you over the phone that so-and-so is dead because I don't want you to cause an accident on your way there. And I want you to just arrive safe. Okay. So bear with me for a minute, right? So you, you think that aspect of it, I think by not knowing you're thinking he's still alive and he's obviously on the brink of death. So in my mind, you're going to be more reckless driving versus just telling him he's dead. It's, it's done. It's over with. Yes, it's devastating, but you're not going to rush more unnecessarily than you would have before. Right, right. They sped quickly to George Washington University Hospital, and See, when they arrived... Sped quickly. <laughs> we don't know how fast. See what I mean? Is. They learned that Robert had been pronounced dead at 12.25 a.m. And when they arrived, they learned that Robert had been pronounced dead at 12.25 a.m. I'd be so mad. So, if Robert arrived at the house of Joseph, Victor, and Dylan at, let's say, 10.30 p.m. that night, that gives him an hour to introduce himself to the staff at the studio and get himself a cab to arrive at Joseph and Victor's house, but be dead by 12.25 a.m. on August 3rd. So, what happens during that time frame? Well, do you, do we know how long he was at the radio station meeting these staff? We don't, but I'm saying I gave him basically an hour. So he's on the phone with Kathy at 9.30, okay, okay, saying he's on his way to Radio Free Asia. So let's say he's there for an hour. That's a long time. Okay, maybe less than an hour. How long do you think? Do you know how how far away the radio station is from Price's house? I do not. Okay, I'm going to make myself a note because I feel like these are going to be important to the time frame. Okay, anyway, go ahead. So the question is, if he's on the phone with Kathy and stating he's on his way to the studio at 9.30, mm-hmm. right? I'm just wondering what happens in between that time frame because all of a sudden he's pronounced dead at 12.25 Well, clearly somebody's stabbing him in the heart and two other places with a knife that's next to the bedside table. But that's according to somebody who did a phone call on the third floor. So, <laughs> you know, what do I know? But hey, we're going to be stuck on the third floor. (laughs) All right. It's weird. Or, you know, we could ask the guy who just took a shower and then decided. (laughs) Didn't acknowledge anyone. (laughs) But he was on the same floor from the side of it from the victim. Yeah, the guest room was directly next to Dylan Ward's room. So in my mind, I wonder if, I wonder if Joseph and his husband's name is Victor, right? Yes. I wonder if they sleep on the third floor, whoever the hell Dylan is, is on the second floor, but. I would think that Dylan would have heard the scream before Joseph and Victor. So if they heard it, he must have heard it. Well, maybe he was in the shower. They did state that he looked freshly showered and he had his robe on. But they said that he'd been, that what the victim had been dead for a while. So he's taking like an hour and a half shower. Hey, I'm not taking sides yet. I'm you know, just giving I'm, you I'm some sure depending on the amount of blood that was on your body, yeah, it might take an hour and a half to wash it off. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to wash that off. Sure. Okay. Oh. Police brought in cadaver dogs trained to locate evidence of blood and decaying flesh. Other than the small amount of blood found on Robert's bed, the only other traces of blood located in the house were found in the dryer lint trap on the second floor next to Dylan Ward's room and near the outside drain on the back patio. And I'm sorry, go back. Small amount of blood? Yes. So I believe that it came from his t-shirt and was just on the bed sheet. Other than that, there was no disturbance in the room that Robert's in or on the bed that he's on because the bed was freshly made. 
So he was basically laying on top of the comforter, the sheets, everything. But yes, you have this huge scene, right? And yeah, what you think had, would be... He had a gaping hole in his yes, heart on one of them. Yes. Small amount of, of blood, blood on make, the bed that Robert was laying on. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It appears to be very clean, right? Yes. When you would think, when you imagine that something like that, I think something horrific and blood everywhere and blood spatter well, everywhere. If it's... Well, yeah, there will be from the knife going in and coming back out. And but there, there was not. Did they, do we know if he was moved? We'll get there. I uh, think he might have been. I think okay. that's a personal belief. Okay. So let's go back to the blood located in the house found in the dryer lint trap. So on the second, next to what's his face. And this is the guy that had come out of a freshly whatever shower and didn't answer any questions and just went back into his room. Yes. Dylan Ward. Okay. Well, Dylan, you're number one on my list. <laughs> and then blood. There was blood near the outside drain on the back patio. Back patio, which yep. would have been on the first floor. Yes. So perhaps someone had washed blood off of themselves on the patio and then dried their clothes on the second floor. So the person that killed Robert this in quote unquote intruder. Yeah. So the intruder goes up. Pat, who whose door was first? Robert's. I'm assuming was his room was first, and then Dylan's, Dylan's room was first. Dylan's room. Yes, was first. Okay. So I'm a killer, and I do any mini miny mo. Apparently, because <laughs> we're not just gonna go for the first door. Right. Uh, random that's right that's weird and i'm not going to do anything to anyone else in the house i'm going to target this specific person that really has no correlation with being in the house because they're very well off nothing was stolen the house looked immaculate so there was no signs of an intruder right but they're being told it had to be an intruder we don't know who could have done this they also stole a knife out of our kitchen so this feels very intentional Yes, That's exactly. Weird. This is weird. Okay, so I'm an intruder. I come in downstairs, take a random kitchen knife, go up to the second floor past some dude's yeah, room. and I'm going to know to go up to the second floor yeah. and pass specific doors, right? And decide I'm going to kill the one Asian in the house. Go to the second door, even though I don't know who's behind any of these doors. Right. Well, maybe Robert's door was open? I don't know. Okay. Anyway, so you go. I stab Robert three times with zero blood spatter, barely any blood on the bed. Leave him there. And barely any blood on the knife. It was a light smearing of blood. And I'm going to leave my murder weapon on the nightstand next to the scene. We need to keep that in mind. Yes. I was just getting to that. And then I'm basically just what? Going to vanish into the middle of the night? I'm going to clearly go downstairs and pose myself off first, throw my clothes in the dryer real quick, then grab them, put them on, <laughs> and have plenty of time to run out the door and then maybe scream as I'm running out the door to alert everybody else that I just murdered. This doesn't make any sense to me. What a well thought out plan this makes from this criminal. sense to me. <laughs> I don't understand. Where do you get so these stories? So many ways this could go. Oh no. Okay. Things are getting pretty intense in this case. Jessica clearly has a lot of questions. I don't understand what's happening. It doesn't, <laughs> nothing makes sense to And me. we're about to go on a whirlwind of emotions and events that took place, but this is where we're going to stop today. Are you kidding me? <laughs>
No. Next week, we'll be back with part two of the case of Robert Wan and our questions on what the hell could have possibly happened to him. Jessica's questions as well. Um, I feel like she has a lot. I'm going to research this case. Is this a very (laughs) well-known case? You know, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it. To me, I feel like it's well-known. There's documentaries out there about him. Oh, there are? Yes, and I feel like quite a few podcasts have done him. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard this case before, but I've always found this case to be very intriguing because I just want answers on what happened. And it's such a small time frame of what could have happened. And just like you just said, did the intruder, (laughs) you know, just pick a random door, kill this person? Where did all the blood go? I don't know. Decided to wash himself off leave the murder weapon, scream when he was running out of the house. Like, there's so many questions. So is there more to this story? Of course. We're going to really get into it, but you're going to have to wait until next week. I mean, I'm not waiting. Like, (laughs) I'm I'm not going to wait. I'm going to do my own research because I'm not waiting. (laughs) Unlike the rest of you, I'm so sorry you have to wait. I'm not. (laughs) But before we go, I want to spill some tea with you. This one is on the less than epic end of the spectrum. When two aspiring criminals attempted to open an ATM machine with a blowtorch, they suddenly understood the big mistake they had made. They successfully melted through the heavy metal frame surrounding the all-important cash (laughs) and were inches away from success. However, they reached the pile of paper bills that they were after and they mistakenly set fire to the entire pile of money leaving nothing but a criminal record behind. Oh my God, they burned all the money. (laughs) Yeah, they made it through the frame and were so close and they burned the money. How devastating. (laughs) How stupid. I'm going to take a blowtorch to an ATM. I'm so upset. Hope for the best. Oh, that's sad. Well, you know, hey, you win, you lose, I guess. Are you ready for my jokes? I am ready. All right. Well, since it's been three weeks, I will do two of them. Oh, we are lucky. All right. I'm ready. Okay. Ready? Why is it so cheap to throw a party at a haunted house? Why? The ghosts bring all the booze. (laughs) That one was good. (laughs) All the booze. All the booze. (laughs) All right. My second one. Do you know why my printer's name is Bob Marley? Why? Because it'd always be jamming. (laughs) Those are definitely worth the wait. (laughs) Before we end this episode, we wanted to announce that our podcast, The Tea on Crime, has now joined Patreon. For those of you that aren't familiar with what that is, it is a monthly subscription page platform that will be ad-free with bonus episodes that are exclusive only to our Patreon listeners. So head on over to our page at patreon.com slash tea on crime to hear more tea being spilled. We're really excited to provide you with bonus content. And then as always, everybody, we really appreciate your support. That's it for today's episode. For all of our teaaholics that enjoyed our show today, please remember to go and rate the show on whatever platform you are listening to. Give us a follow on Facebook at Tea on Crime Podcast. Instagram at T on Crime Podcast, Twitter at T on Crime Pod, and TikTok at T on Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Britt. And I'm your co-host, Jessica. And we will be back next week to serve you more tea on all things true crime. Bye!